Let's pray together. God, we humbly acknowledge that we don't see, we don't respond, we don't love in the way that we ought. We don't treasure your word in the way we should. We don't delight that our Father has provided us with so many good gifts. And so we confess these things and ask that you would change our hearts. That you would not continue to pour out your blessings upon us. You would just give us the ability to delight in them with thanks and praise. Show us your face. Turn your face towards us and grant us freedom to be your little children in Christ. Amen. If you put two or more kids in the same room full of toys, it's only a matter of mere moments before the kicking and screaming, yelling and fighting ensues. You know this is the case if you grew up with multiple siblings or if you're a parent who has raised multiple small children. Each one always arguing over who had it first. Who gets the best seat? Who knows better? Who gets to decide how to play next? Each one asserting his own greatness over the other. Until, of course, Dad walks in the room. Then Dad stands there and they pause for a moment. And then they start arguing with Dad over who's the greatest. Each one wanting affirmation from Dad that, I did have it first. I should get to decide. I do know better. Until dad ends the entire debate by saying, you are all wrong. I don't care who had it first. What's more important than who had it first or who is right is that you two learn to get along. In the heat of the moment, each one of the children has assumed for himself far more authority and importance in the family than any little child can really have. But this isn't a sermon about parenting, is it? From our text, we can see that this is a message to the church, to you and me. Jesus uses childlikeness to explain how each one of us relates not just to God, but to one another as children of the kingdom. So before we jump back into our text in Matthew, I think it would be wise to come back and have a little summary of where we've been. It's been almost two months since we've been in the book of Matthew together. We had a little Advent series and then four weeks on eldership. And now we're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. So remember that Matthew is telling the unique perspective of Jesus' life, highlighting him as the long-awaited king of Israel. Jesus, or He uses many Old Testament references to show that Jesus is this king that everyone expected. He structures this Gospel with a series of Speeches followed by interactions with people to show Jesus has the authority to declare as king, but also models by coming down from the mountain how to love people. And then chapter 16 is this big turning point in the story where Jesus reveals that he clearly is the king and he is assembling to himself a new kingdom community with him as their king. But he had to teach them that this kingdom is a lot different than what they were expecting. It's an upside-down kingdom, flipping every expectation over, where everyone in the kingdom serves. Not just serves the king, 
but the king himself comes down from his throne and serves everyone else. But throughout chapter 17, then we still see that the disciples aren't understanding. And so Jesus uses this story about paying taxes right at the end of chapter 17. He says, sons of the kingdom don't need to pay taxes because it doesn't make sense. You would be taking the money out of your right hand and putting it in your left. So what's the point? And so the disciples are thinking, how important do you need to be to get these awesome kingdom perks? How great do you need to be? Because I want some of those benefits for myself. But Jesus has to correct them, say, no, I care more about harmony in the kingdom than who is the greatest, than my rights as a king. And so Jesus pays the tax. And so with that, we come to chapter 18. This whole chapter is further explanation of what it should look like for us, children of the kingdom, to be getting along with one another. How do we interact in all these kingdom outposts, these embassies that we call the local church? Everything in this chapter falls under the concept of humility towards harmony. The question of who is the greatest is a false start. It's the wrong kind of question. And Jesus now corrects their expectations with the imagery of a child to guide how we ought to relate to him and to one another. And so our main idea for the first half of Matthew chapter 18 in these 14 verses is that we ought to love one another as humble children of the kingdom. Jesus has already been suggesting to his disciples that they are sons of the kingdom, but in their minds they're thinking grown adults, offspring certainly, but grown adults who are about to inherit some really important responsibilities in the kingdom. So maybe I'm going to be made governor of this region over here. And he has to correct them, say, you guys aren't even close to that mature. You can't handle such responsibilities. You're just little children and need to learn to love one another as humble children of the kingdom. I want to emphasize how important this concept is for us to grasp as a church. We have so far to go in our sanctification, in our growth into Christian maturity. And it's especially important to understand this, to identify with this before we get to the next verses, the last half of chapter 18, these so-called church discipline texts. Because Jesus isn't as concerned about who is right and who is wrong as much as he's concerned about us being little children who seek harmony together under the king. So we're going to look at this text these 14 verses in three different parts to learn how to love one another as children. In the first five verses, we'll establish our identity as children and learn how to receive kingdom children. Why? That's such a delight to do. And then in verses 6 to 9, how to protect the other kingdom children. Go to great lengths to make sure we are preserving one another's faith in Christ. And then in 10 through 14, we pursue kingdom children. The Father has such a heart for every one of His own, and we need to develop that heart as well. So let's return to the text and look at this idea of receiving kingdom children in verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. So this entire chapter is set up with this question of who's the greatest. How can the disciples get for themselves the most benefit in this kingdom? They've got the wrong mindset. They're missing the most important thing. Some people might refer to this section as the path to greatness, setting up this counterintuitive lesson for us that in order to achieve greatness, you've got to start really small. That to be the greatest, you need to be the servant of all. Which is true, Jesus says that, but we still take that type of message and twist it for our own self-interested purposes. Still wanting what's best for us. Jesus isn't saying that humility is the path to greatness. He's trying to get us to understand that nobody is the greatest. No, there are no great ones in the kingdom except one. God alone. Humility is simply satisfaction in not being the greatest. Nobody should be fighting to have their voice heard. Nobody's perspective is that important. We should all simply be happy to say, I can't believe I'm in the kingdom. This is marvelous. Jesus makes this clear by bringing forward a little child. Titus, come here, buddy. Come on. (laughs) I didn't actually think you would do it. A little child. This is what I expected. I need you to keep your hand right here so my mic works. A small child like Titus. The word that Jesus used for little child is not someone who is a grown adult, but it's a specific word for a little child under 10 maybe six years old, like my boy. But what does he want us to learn about this little child? What does it look like for Titus to be my son? Children are small. They're lowly. Especially in the ancient world, children had no legal rights. They had the lowest social status. Kids are ignorant of how the world works. They foolishly rush into decisions and emotions, children are completely vulnerable, dependent upon their parents to care for them, for the adults in their life to take care of them. Kids don't get to make decisions. The adults in their life do. But children have an extraordinary trust in the adults to take care of him. He is so afraid, but he trusts his daddy to take care of him. He's so quick to forgive if I make him, if I hurt him, because he just wants to be my kid again. He's free in his ignorance of how the world works, just to delight being my child. And so if you're in the kingdom, if you are one of God's children, this, this is you. Thanks, buddy. You can go sit down. Okay. Okay. This is why we want children in worship with us. To this, be this constant reminder of our own childlikeness, our own dependence upon God. Because you are children. You are ignorant in the way that the world really works. 
You're completely dependent upon God to take care of you. And when you come into this family, you need to come with the understanding that you don't get to fight over who gets to make what decisions, who gets the best seats, who gets the most prominent roles. Your job, your responsibility is to simply be free to be a kid. Enjoy being a child under the Father's provision. But it's even more than just how we get along until Jesus comes back, until we get to heaven. Being childlike is actually the first step towards salvation. Salvation is simply surrendering yourself like a child, admitting, I know nothing. I have nothing. Please, Father, take care of me. Even though we've done nothing to earn it. My son can't say, you owe me this. I don't owe him anything, but it's my joy to take care of him. If you are coming to Christ to become great, if you're coming to Christ to be well thought of or have your own influence, then you're not coming at all, Jesus is saying. You only come by surrendering in childlike humility. But still, recognizing your utter dependence doesn't save you. You still need God to recognize you in your dependence and have mercy on you. And so, in verse 4, he hints at how God accomplishes this salvation. Jesus says, the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is who becomes like this child. Humbles himself like a child. But who is actually able to do that? Who here can say, yes, I have humbled myself like a child as I ought? None of us. This is statement from Jesus is kind of a riddle to which the answer is nobody is the greatest except one. Jesus is the greatest. He's the only one who in his full maturity humbled himself. And became a child. Remember Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a man. He humbled himself and took on the form of a slave. The God of the universe became the lowest, most vulnerable, most dependent type of human possible. He didn't enter into this world as a full-grown man, he entered into Mary's womb as an embryo and then turned into a zygote and a fetus and a newborn and a toddler and a little six-year-old boy, giving value to every single stage of human development, but even more than that, displayed himself as the only one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he modeled for us what he expects when he tells us to be dependent upon God as children for everything. Nobody can say they've done that. This is only our identity when we are in Christ, when we reach to him and grab a hold of him. Because he's the only one in his life who humbled himself before the Father perfectly. Yet in his death on the cross, he took the punishment for us as rebellious children. And in his resurrection, he says, come with me, be adopted into my family. Only by clinging to him are we able to become humble little children. But remember, 
It's little children, small children. Yes, future heirs someday. We're going to rule and reign with Him. But today, in this room, we are all silly little children just trying to get along. And so it's with this identity that we read the instruction in verse 5 to receive such children into the fellowship. He says, anyone who comes in my name, receive them. Welcome them as family. This is more than just reciting a phrase if someone comes in and says, well, you you have to because I said in Jesus' name. And it's more than unity at all costs. That's what the world wants, this unity that compromises everything for the sake of tolerance. No, we refuse to compromise on allegiance to King Jesus. But we do welcome anyone who comes in Jesus' name. Those who have shown themselves surrendered, utterly dependent, willing to do whatever He says with this humble, childlike dependence upon the work of Christ alone. Have you ever seen little four- and five-year-old kids running around in a playground? And they they just love playing with all the other four- and five-year-olds. And they spend no time thinking about if the kid is smart enough or cool enough, if he's the right color or the right size. They just run up to him and say, you want to play with me? And then they go run off giggling and laughing. There's no shame being seen together. They have no history together. They're not afraid if the other one's going to hurt them. They're just delighted for the opportunity to have fun with some people that are about the same size. And so too, we must be willing, excited, eager to gather others into us so they can share in the joy we have. We must humble ourselves like children and invite others to play with us. And we do it because this is the most profound thing in the whole section. Verse 5, when we receive them, we receive Him. We receive more of Him. Isn't that what we all want? More of Jesus? I want to know Jesus more. Well, then get out there and welcome more people in. We get more Jesus, not just so we have a bigger church or have more friends, but because we get more of our King Jesus. But then once they get into the family, that's when the real trouble starts. That's when the difficult work begins. Sure, those little four and five-year-olds at the playground are happy to invite someone to play with them, but you know, it still is only a matter of time before they're arguing about the rules of tag. You can't say time out right before I tagged you. So we need to figure out how to play together. Verses 6 to 9 show us how we protect the kingdom children. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The emphasis in this section is 
what we see in these phrases, cause to sin or temptations to sin. It's actually the same word repeated multiple times. All the same word in Greek that means to cause offense. It doesn't necessarily mean to make someone sin as though I'm the one solely responsible for their sin. But it's to put an obstacle in front of them, cause them to trip and fall, unnecessarily offend them or lead them to doubt. We do this type of thing to each other all the time. This is what happened when the disciples were talking and asking the question, who's the greatest? One guy says, "Ah, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And suddenly everyone's eyes turn off of Jesus and focus on this question. Well, maybe I'm the greatest. Well, he's pretty good, but I think I'm a little better. And they've all lost sight of the main point, what's most important. And we do it all the time in the church family. These attempts to one-up each other. And then we criticize and we find who's at fault. Who's to blame for making me feel inferior? And then we rub it into each other with unforgiving attitudes. But all of it's usually done in really subtle ways. We don't even think about it. The clothes that we wear. Or the type of songs we sing. Our lifestyle patterns, our parenting choices, our diet preferences, our leisure activities... All of these things, as good as they are, have a tendency to become the main thing which distracts other people, makes them feel like they don't measure up and that they're not worthy to be around us. And we cause a little brother or sister to stumble in their faith. And Jesus says, woe to you for making that happen. Woe. This isn't an exciting woe. This is serious. This is the type of language Jesus uses for those hypocritical Pharisees whose false teaching is leading people to hell. We should listen because we do not want to be this person. Jesus is far more concerned about harmony among His family than He is in establishing who is right. He's far more concerned about us getting along than who gets what gift and whether we got everything all lined up in a row. His first priority is that we learn to listen and respect one another. It's so serious that we should be willing to go to the extremes of cutting really good things out of our lives to find this harmony. The metaphor of cutting off your hands and feet or gouging out your eyes, it's clearly hyperbole, but he wants us to feel the seriousness of this call. Jesus used this imagery before in Matthew chapter 5 when he was telling us how to avoid lust. Cut out your eye if you have to, to avoid it. But now, instead of applying it to personal holiness, he's applying it to corporate unity. Think about how important your hands and your feet and your eyes are. These are how you survive, how you make your living in this world, how you get places and see where to go. But we must be willing to give up even these good things in order to get something even better, something far greater. Love, unity, harmony together as siblings in Christ. This is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Those brothers and sisters right in front of him, he's willing to give up any of his freedoms in order to love them that they would see Jesus better. 
all of us must be marked by this attitude, this willingness to cut whatever it takes out of our lives to make others feel loved. Our hands might represent the way we serve in the church. But if someone else wants to serve in that way, by all means, go ahead. It's yours. You can do it. Our feet represent the direction we want to go as a church. But someone else says, I think that maybe this is a better direction. Well, let me follow you. I'd be glad to go. Our eyes represent the vision of where we should go or what the, what's more beautiful out there, what's better for the family. But someone else says, I think that looks a little more pleasing. And we say, I'm going to try to see it your way. This is so serious that Jesus says it would be better for the kingdom if you had a millstone wrapped around your neck and you were tossed into the ocean and drowned in the depths of the sea. That your life prematurely ended so you get out of the way for harmony to happen in the church. Even worse, the more you assert your own rights, the more you assert your own wisdom and insight, the more you might reveal yourself not to be a child of the kingdom at all. It's better to have peace and unity with your brother or sister than to hold on to your possessions and your rights and all of your own desires and end up in hell. Jesus cares so much for the unity of His family. If you are right with God, then you will passionately pursue harmony at all costs with your brothers and sisters. And in the next section, he shows us how to do it. Perhaps at this point you realize, yes, there is someone that I need to seek harmony with. I might have caused one of these little ones to fall. What responsibility do I have? And then the answer is in verses 10 to 14, where we pursue kingdom children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that In heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So now we're in the scenario where we caused offense to one of these. We didn't cut off our hand in time and we offended someone. For whatever reason, maybe it was a sinful offense or maybe I used my own freedoms and it tripped someone up. The opposite of welcoming someone is in verse 10, despising them, making them feel like they're not good enough, that they don't belong, they don't fit in. Because they felt despised, they went away and they have gone astray. Now this one sheep that's gone astray, don't think of this person in this context as the the prodigal son who said, I'm going to sin and I'm going to go pursue more sin and that's all I want and he's hiding from his guilt. That's not this sheep. It's also not the the non-Christian who's out there acting ignorantly in his sin. This is someone who's been among us. And as time went on, they felt like they didn't belong and they kind of lagged behind and then they just turned and went off. They've gone astray. That verb there in the Greek is actually a passive verb, meaning they've been caused to go astray. They didn't choose to go astray on their own. It's been 
put on them. One of us made them feel ashamed, despised, threatened, worthless. Or maybe they did sin and they came back to seek forgiveness from someone and they were met with an unforgiving heart. So they just left. Jesus says that should never happen. That should never happen. Go after them. Get them. Pull them back. I don't care what they did wrong, who's right or wrong. Get them and restore a relationship with them. But maybe in your mind you're feeling a little sense of justice or fairness welling up. So my kids all the time tell me when I say stop fighting, well, that's not fair. Son, you have no idea what fair means. We tend to ask, well, who was right? Who was at fault? Which one of us should repent? What's the proper steps for restoring someone to fellowship? And once you get to those questions, you've already lost the face of God. You've lost sight of your identity in Christ as a little child who really doesn't have a proper sense of justice. If we got justice, if we got was fair, we would be facing the penalty for our sins. That's not how God dealt with us and we ought not deal with one another in such a way. God cares more about unifying His people than establishing which of us is the most righteous. Look at the Father's heart in these verses. The angels are before His face at all times reporting what's going on among us. When God's, the Bible talks about God's face, it refers to His favor, His loving interest, His care for somebody. And so he watches the church with great interest to see how we are caring for his little children. He wants us to love one another, protect one another, welcome one another as he has done for us in Christ. Setting aside his right to be offended and welcoming us in. Finding a way to reconcile. Jesus expresses this care in the parable of the 99 sheep and the one. It's this shocking image where the shepherd leaves behind the entire flock on the mountain. It doesn't say if he left him with another shepherd or in a pen. He just goes to go after that one. This one that's suddenly vulnerable outside the safety of the flock. He pursues her. He wants her back in the happy fellowship of the sheep. He wants her to have the joy of being with the other children. And look at what his greatest joy is in verse 13. God is happy. And the the thing that brings him the most happiness is when that little sheep is rescued and pulled back in and she's put in harmony with the flock. Not that the 99 were right to stay together. He doesn't run back and say, way to go, guys. You did a great job. You did the right thing, even though she was wandering. You stood on solid biblical principles. That makes me so proud. No! Go get that lost sheep! Set aside your sense of pride and justice and restore that relationship. God's heart is that none of them should perish. I can't see my manuscript. We must passionately pursue God's sheep, passionately pursue harmony with one another at all costs. 
How do we do it? Where does this leave us? The primary way we're going to accomplish that is to refocus our attention on the main thing. King Jesus. He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When He is first among us, then we are happy. We are confident to simply be humbled children. When do kids get along best with one another? Is it when I'm doing the dishes and I gave them a good toy to go play with up in their room? No. It's not even when I'm standing there right among them, standing over the top. Now make sure you take a turn. Now give her a turn. My kids play together, have the greatest joy and harmony when I am right there playing with them. They love it. They work together and laugh and giggle when they're fighting together the daddy monster who's wrestling them down to the ground. They work constructively together when I'm there helping them build this huge Lego city. And so when does the church best get along? When we stop talking about who is right and who is wrong and focus on Christ among us. His Spirit is alive in us. His Word prevalent in every one of our conversations. When we keep the focus on Christ, the King, the greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven, it's so easy then for us to just let go of our right to be offended. Let go of any good things that we have. Because it is our far greater joy to experience Christ in each other. So make Christ the focus of your heart again today. Remind yourself you're a child. Humble yourself and develop a heart to receive one another, to protect one another, and pursue harmony with one another. If you have some bitterness towards someone in the church, don't hold it another moment. Go to them and say, I just want to talk and overcome something with you. If there's a broken relationship, even if it's two, three, ten years old, go to that person and say, I don't remember what the offense is particularly, but I want to restore this relationship. Too much of our lives is a battle for who has control. And once we get to the point of arguing who gets to make the decisions, who has the right authority, who sets the direction, then we've We've lost God's face. We are all just little children. So let's today commit to seeking harmony with one another by all of us delighting in the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, my heart, my heart, I hate to see frustration, bitterness, sadness. I want to do everything I can to reunite people and give people peace. And I confess that too often I try to be the Savior. I try to be the one who holds it all together. And so I just throw it all to you and say, bring unity among us. May we be marked. May Redemption City Church be marked as a welcoming people. Yes, we love our doctrine. Yes, we love our glorious reformed theology. It is such 
soothing salve to our soul. It is such inspiring words towards holiness. And yet, if it causes another to stumble, what do we do? God, help us. Give us wisdom. As King Solomon said, there's this great responsibility, and I admit I can't do it unless you help me. Give us wisdom. I know you're glad to answer that prayer. Give us wisdom how to love and change our hearts. Do a powerful work. Make this year a new year full of joy and peace together as we work in harmony to delight in the freedom that Christ purchased for us, that we could be your children, happy forever. Amen.